0: Section 94, first public Windows 7 demo. I'm super enthused about what Windows 7 will do in a lot of ways. Bill Gates in an April 2008 meeting of the Inter-American Development Bank. In an era of huge software projects with a zillion new features in every release, there's little more exciting than the first public demos. Such demos are also incredibly stressful to pull off. In addition to all the work to just get the code to demo-ready condition, there's the lead-up to public disclosure, briefing reporters, and aligning partners. The first demo of Windows 7 was all those things and more, because we'd, or just I, had been so quiet for so long. This is the story of unveiling at least one small part of Windows 7, along with my own personal screw-up along the way. The second of three development milestones for Windows 7 was originally scheduled to end on March 26, 2008, which was eight months after the project's start of Vision Day. We ended up finishing on May 9th, which was a slip of 44 days. For any massive software project, this was fantastic. For Windows, it was doubly so. It was even better than that. The new organization was starting to take hold. The product was emerging. The team was executing. We were building what was committed to build, and it was working. The daily builds were happening, and by and large, the team was running Windows 7 every day. After two years in this role leading Windows, I finally felt like it would be okay to emerge and to talk about what comes next. It is difficult to put into words the constant gnawing, sick-to-my-stomach feeling up until now, wondering if we would ever deliver. We had definitely promised, but for nearly 20 years, I'd seen leaders across the company say, the team is feeling good, or we're making good progress, or the milestone is complete, only to see the project unravel, or simply recognize it was never actually raveled. For months, I'd been under immense pressure from OEM partners, our OEM account managers, enterprise account managers, investor relations, Intel, retailers, not to mention Steve B., and many more, just to articulate a ship date or some plan. It's always the ship date. They always want to know the ship date. Hardly a week went by without receiving a forwarded email detailing the costs of not disclosing what we were up to and when. Yet I was perhaps irrationally concerned that I would put something out there only to have to recant or adjust what was said. Many told me I was being overly cautious. Many said it was better to open up communication and worry about having to correct it later. I just couldn't shake the concerns. I felt Microsoft had one chance to make up for the issues with Vista. In the online version, there's a picture of me in the style of an Uncle Sam poster saying, We want you for Windows 7. And then at the bottom it says... Shut up, we're building it. It was many of, one of many humorous things like that. Many perceived the Windows team was trying to become more like an Apple and close off all discussion of a product until the moment it was announced. This was not the case at all. Windows is sufficiently a different product, as described previously, and to bring it to market requires a huge ecosystem of support, and that support invests time and money. There's no way to surprise the market with Windows, because an entire industry needs to know about it, prepare, and execute to bring new PCs, peripherals, and applications to market. For months, Ryan Sohn's email R. and Bernardo Caldas, email B. Caldas, on the ecosystem team, have been in deep technical discussions with partners about what would come next, but had not yet fully committed to a time frame. Any hints of a specific schedule or business terms such as SKUs or pricing would immediately make it back to the business side of the OEMs and then to Steve B.'s inbox, Even topics such as if there would be a 32-bit release versus moving the ecosystem to 64-bit only would have broad implications for PC makers and Intel. We had to walk a fine line between being excellent partners and creating an external news cycle that impacted partners as much as it impacted us. We knew that the release dates were the most likely to be leaked and the most damaging. Finishing a product with a giant hovering countdown clock had dogged many past Windows releases, yet the partners needed time to prepare, and we were closer to finishing than starting. Windows 7 would soon be fully disclosed with the OEMs. When asked in any forum, we said our goal was to release Windows 7, quote, within three years of Vista. We were intentionally vague as to whether that meant release to manufacturing, available for enterprise download, the first PCs in the U.S., or some other market. Effectively, this gave us a buffer of about three months. And yeah, that was sneaky, but it was just one concession I made to disclosure. I really hated that all people cared about was a date, when a product was so much more than that. I understood, but still. Then in April 2008, Bill G gave a speech, and inadvertently, in one small part, some believed he implied that Windows would finish in the following year. The press, who were here to hear about international finance at the Inter-American Development Bank meeting, ran with it and suggested Windows 7 would be ready much sooner than previously planned. Three years from Vista. In fact, a year from April 2008 was sooner than our published schedule, and that was not going to happen. Explaining that inaccuracy without stating the ship date was impossible. It just wasn't that Bill said the next Windows would arrive sometime in the ne- next year or so. He also expressed his enthusiasm in what was certainly meant to be a throwaway line, became came across to tech industry desperate for any news when he said, I'm super enthused about what Windows 7 will do in a lot of ways. We were close enough to completing the milestone that it was time to officially plan on talking to the press, who would be happy to talk off the record while also helping us to reduce the amount they would need to absorb all at once when it was time for stories to be written. In parallel, the ecosystem team began working with OEMs and ODMs on the detailed schedule and on software drops. Our first stop, as it had been with every product I worked on since Office 95, was Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal. Our meetings had become somewhat of a routine, perhaps for both of us, though by no means easy or predictable. I usually prepared an overly large amount of data to demonstrate how people were using our products out in the wild and hoped to both inform him while pushing for some positive recognition. Sometimes, yeah, I went a bit overboard on the data, but Walt was staunchly independent and would never say if it was persuasive, but he was always thoughtful in his questions and comments. By this time, Catherine Barrett was joining Walt when she visited. She started with the Wall Street Journal out of college. By 2011, she had her own column called The Digital Solution, and also worked with Walt and Kara Swisher on the All Things D conference. Catherine and Walt together were a formidable audience. They were both deep into the products with their own unique perspectives and would not put up with absolutely any spin or marketing. They were advocates for their readers and strident in their desire to see PCs live up to their ease of use potential, and they played no favorites. This meeting, about a month after Bill G.'s speech, had a dual purpose. First, we wanted to try to diffuse some of what they had no doubt perceived rightfully as a mess with Vista, without throwing Vista under the bus, while also setting the stage for Windows 7. If all went well, we might even secure time at the All Things D conference that year for a quick demo of Windows 7 at the end of the already scheduled Bill G. and Steve B. joint interview. It was stressful. It was walled and Windows 7 was not fully formed for reviewers yet. Joining the meeting for all, for parts of it would be Julie Larson Green of Windows, Dean Hakamovich uh, representing Internet Explorer, and Chris Jones email Chris Joe discussing live services. Meeting in a conference room in Building 99 with a half dozen demo laptops on this table, I started with our usual printouts of data, showing them an overview of Windows Vista in market. Walt's earlier review of Vista had called it maddeningly slow, even on new, well-configured computers. Catherine's writings had been a bit less harsh, but not by much. I had to try to at least change their minds, but neither Walt nor Catherine were impressed. I took time to talk about the landscape of PCs being sold and what was going on with laptops and the new and exciting netbook category. In reviewing the original Asus ePC, Walt concluded it was a valiant effort, but it had too many compromises to pry most travelers away from their larger laptops. That led to the especially hot topic of all reviewers, but particularly Walt, who had praised the MacBook Air. When would Windows see a MacBook Air competitor? Walt, Julie, and I had discussed the MacBook Air at the Apple launch event a few months earlier. My lack of an answer on behalf of PC makers was not satisfactory for them or for me. As described previously, the PC makers were much more focused on inexpensive devices like netbooks and not eager to take on Apple or the premium PC market. Browsers were much discussed in the late 2000s, though not the one from Microsoft. We didn't know it at the time, but in hindsight, it would be fair to assume that they had been or were soon to be briefed on the the forthcoming Google Chrome browser that shipped in late 2008. Still, Walt and Catherine wanted to know about Internet Explorer and particularly privacy, a hot industry topic among a few, but especially them. We were woefully behind Firefox on core browsing capability, but we had a fantastic story to share about privacy features that DHatch and the team had developed, including a feature to deal with tracking cookies. We showed them how mainstream sites like the New York Times were doing such a poor job communicating to users how much information was being shared and with whom, but with only the vague sense of permissions or even disclosures. We did not go as far as to simply provide ad blocking, which many tech enthusiasts would have appreciated but we did plan on releasing and showed our new Do Not Track feature. The online version has a screenshot of some of the data that we showed regarding the use of Internet Explorer and browsing in general. During development, a series of meetings with lobbyists from the advertising industry discussing Internet Explorer privacy features had led to veiled threats about anti-competitive behavior by Microsoft against ad-supported Google with such a set of features that we had shown. Such hints or even threats were common from anyone connected to Washington or government communities. This was all unrelated to the consent decree, though there were still a couple of years left on that agreement and the oversight meetings that I routinely attended. As a result, Internet Explorer 8's privacy features that were well-received in this briefing would ultimately be scaled back due to an enormously frustrating push from the senior ranks of Microsoft's legal department, to capitulate to lobbying groups, and to avoid drawing attention of regulators, sparing our own nation advertising business from having to comply with privacy requirements. Do Not Track was essentially shelled before we even started. Today, the capability is a core part of Apple's platform and the Microsoft Edge browser. Our primary goal for this meeting was to showcase Windows 7. For the first time, we offered up full disclosure of our overall goals and schedule. We trusted Walt and Catherine as we built a great working relationship with them over the years, but more importantly, because of their unmatched professional integrity. After the requisite but polite reminder of the holes we had dug with Vista, we moved on to show some of the working features of Windows 7. We covered in quick succession three topics before we got to the demonstration. Julie led a deep dive into our theme of putting users back in control. We discussed improvements to the dreaded UAC experience. The user account control feature was introduced with Vista as a mechanism to lock down typical consumer PCs and prevent software from being installed by accident. Unfortunately, the swift reaction to the nanny feature of this was universal loathing. It became a symbol for the dislike of of Vista. As it would turn out, this feature was only the first of what would become a typical smartphone experience in years to come. But being first and getting between tech enthusiasts and their downloaded software was also incurring their wrath. It was also the subject of one of the more biting Get a Mac television commercials from Apple. Shortly after the Vista launch, the internet was filled with instructions that had to disable USC, which we definitely did not appreciate. Julie demonstrated the improved, though still, st- still secure, experience, which was much smoother and well-designed, and added options for enterprise admins and tech enthusiasts to control. Julie's demo succeeded in bringing together many concepts in the basic experience of launching programs and switching between running programs, and as well as the array of distracting notifications and alerts. We were calling the collection of improvements to the Windows Taskbar the new Superbar. With confidence, we compared the Superbar to the OS X Dock in Macintosh, knowing we had solved problems that the Dock had not. The online version includes several screenshots of the Superbar in action as well as other examples of user experience choices that we made to make Vista better. We showed them the collaboration with PC OEMs on what will be new with Windows 7 PCs. The ecosystem had a long list of improvements to device drivers, supported hardware, and features to make the out-of-box experience for new PCs better for consumers. And we had one last surprise for them. A big bet on Windows 7 was to implement a touch interface across the product, The features in the desktop experience and APIs for developers, as well as device and hardware management. We had been working closely with OEMs to define standards and configurations that would bring touch to Windows 7 PCs. OEMs were excited due to an entirely new engagement for Mike Angine team to enable quality touch in new PCs. They believed this would help differentiate from the Mac. We had an even bigger vision. We wanted this for all PCs eventually, just like it was going to be on all phones. Months or more from broad pre-release and totally hush-hush, the next demonstration showed how we moved applications from the original Surface table computer to PCs connected to desktop monitor touch panels. The Surface PC, originally the original Surface, was a product developed by the hardware division. It was not unlike an 80s arcade table. It featured a modified version of Windows combined with custom hardware, enabling a new form of multi-touch interaction. The table had found a niche of uses like in Las Vegas as an information kiosk, and had even been demonstrated by Bill G at the previous year's All Things D conference. As re- it related to Windows 7, there were touch APIs and the start of hardware support. Our main demonstration was showing mapping software that zoomed in and around using multi-touch, yeah, like the new iPhone, along with a virtual keyboard, which when combined would offer up many opportunities for developers. On Windows, touch went beyond just using your fingers, but also included the digitizer needed for pen computing, which was the only feature Bill G consistently pushed for in Windows 7. While touch was a part of Windows 7 from the start, there were two reasons we chose to emphasize it as an early Windows 7 feature in this meeting and potentially the conference. Showing touch early was counterintuitive because it was totally new and could have easily remained secret for an actual surprise. But first, We wanted to garner broad OEM support for touch, which was a long lead feature for them. No OEMs were selling touchscreens, which meant sourcing and developing a product was a significant investment and effort. Momentum from the conference demonstration would represent a key public commitment by Microsoft. Second, there had been long ongoing rumors that Apple would add touch to Macintosh. And with the success of iPhone, this seemed much more likely. Whether such rumors turned out to be true or not, The opportunity to both garner ecosystem support and get ahead of Apple while also showing off a Bill G pet feature while he happened to be appearing at the conference seemed positive all around. To Bill G and other pen advocates, it seemed obvious Macintosh would gain touch and handwriting support. After all, Microsoft's tablet PC was in market for years already and had not seen a competitive entry. So the logic went. Neither Walt nor Catherine ever gave a thumbs-up reaction at a first showing, always reserving judgment until they used and wrote about a product themselves. Walt agreed to consider a demo of the touch features of Windows 7 at the All Things Digital conference a month later. They wanted to show more, but we chose to keep the demo focused on what the ecosystem partners would value. We had a lot of work to do, but we were, like, nervous excited. With the conference pending, we were faced with a ticking clock, which meant we needed to disclose more details about Windows 7. The touch demo was too fragile and too elaborate to take on the road. We did not want to disclose details of the product without evidence or, more importantly, a call to action from either developers or OEMs. Adriana Burrows, email A. Burroughs, when she eventually joined Microsoft, was the senior vice president assigned to the Windows account at the Wagner-Edstrom Communications Agency. Adriana drove the agency strategy for office and was assigned to Windows when I moved. She's an astute communications and marketing pro, had a keen ability to create the right story at the right time. She was also an elite distance runner and a French speaker by upbringing. While she was at the agency, she was a key part of our senior leadership team. She was also the most competitive person I'd ever known and would never accept second place. People in communications rarely say not to talk when given an opportunity. At least that was the case in the 2000s. Reporters are going to write even without first-party commentary. And eventually, whatever they write becomes more plausible than anything a company might later report. I'd been too quiet for too long. We were on the cusp of having a narrative created for us, one that would read something like, Windows 7 is going to be a minor service pack, rushed out the door to fix the woes of Vista, built on a smaller kernel, MinWin, as the key technology. While that might introduce some compatibility concerns, it would be enabling... It would enable finishing the release in early 2009. Adriana proposed a long-form interview with the highly regarded Microsoft Beat reporter Ina Fried of the influential CNET. Ina was a thoughtful journalist and a wide-ranging understanding of the dynamics of the industry. She was widely read and by the right people. Adriana was able to arrange to have a full transcript of the interview published along with Ina's story to reduce the risk of being edited. I thought that was a solid idea, at least at the moment. Adriana created the perfect opportunity for us, even though I still didn't know what to say. More accurately, saying nothing was still my comfort zone. While I never speak unprepared, I just did not work out the answers that sounded credible for the questions I was obviously going to get asked. I got on the phone with Ina, Adriana right there with me in my office, with the call on speaker. For an hour, I did my best Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope. I acted as though I had been forced to make the call. I gave a lot of non-answers. I'm sure Ina was confused since we had initiated the interview. Adriana was tensing up the whole time. I could see it in her eyes with each non-answer. The more I spoke, the deeper a hole I dug. My answers got shorter and my deflection increased. All I could think of was that I didn't want to talk yet because I was so unsure of what we would get done and when. I could not figure out why I was talking and what the call to action was for readers. I was trapped. I felt like we talked for the sake of talking and lost sight of the lead-up to the first demo as the purpose. Ina's story ran the day after the call, right before Memorial Day, as we were heading out to All Things D in Carlsbad for our first public demonstration of Windows 7. It was 3,000 words of me saying nothing. The headline said it all. In an exclusive interview, Steven Sanofsky offers up few details on the new operating system and the rationale for why he's not saying more publicly. For fun, the online version has the entire interview in a screenshot that fills the page. It still says nothing. Adriana wanted to punch me. I had blown an opportunity. I felt bad, but the damage was far worse for the team, who were confused because the interview ended up pushing the needle back to opaque from translucent. I made a mistake and handled it wrong. I learned the hard way that I should have either not done the call or done it well. Fortunately, All Things D gave us a chance to undo the damage. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer were to appear on stage together for one last time. The goal for Microsoft was to show an orderly turnover as Bill announced the end of his two-year transition from chief software architect to non-executive board chair and would no longer work day-to-day at Microsoft. After questioning, they would turn the stage over to a surprise demo of Windows 7 from Julie. The online version has the interview with uh, Bill and Steve linked to the original all things D site, Julie and a veritable force of a dozen people had been hard at work, hardening the windows seven demonstration for the, for the conference. All had been setting up the demo since that late the night before on stage, Bill G and Steve B discussed the transition, answering questions about what would happen in a post bill G Microsoft. Steve described the early financial controls and conservative hiring approach that Bill had that had become the hallmark of Microsoft. There is a touching and relaxing retelling of the way Bill recruited Steve to join the company, including Steve's recollection of a computer on every desk and in every home. Later, in a pointed question, Walt asked Steve, is Vista a failure? Was it a mistake? There are a couple of them, but let's just talk about the the operating system uh and and vista is vista a failure is it a mistake i mean how do you see vista at this point no this is not a not a failure and it's not a mistake are there things that we will continue to modify and improve going forward sure with 2020 hindsight do we say hmm would we do some things differently undoubtedly there are there's no question about that and you know are there things Hmm, application compatibility, should we have been in a little different spot? Probably, but we made a judgment that there was so much pressure to get security right, we gave up, frankly, some compatibility for security. Tough trade-off. Would we make it the same way today? We'll make some, you know, some incremental improvements, and today, 99 of the top 100 applications run really well on Windows Vista. Uh, Is Vista up to your expectations as compared to some of those other things and has there been any damage to the company from, from it? Well, there's no product we've ever shipped, including Windows 95, that was 100% of what I wanted in the product. We, that's part of the magic of software is people give you feedback about what they don't like, what they want you to change, and you get to do a new version. You know, More hard at work on a new version based on, okay, compatibility, we're going to do better. The way you see the user interface of security, we're going to do better. The way we help move you up to the new version, we're going to do better on that. So there's a ton of things. We, we have a culture that's very much about we need to do better. Uh, Vista's given us more opportunities to exercise our culture <laughs> than some products that we've shipped. Then Windows 7 was up. Julie walked on stage and did a slick six-minute demo. It was the product we had always envisioned, executed from an off-the-shelf laptop as well as a desktop with a current in-market touch monitor running Windows 7 software. It was live, and that was terrifying for all of us. Notably, the code was barely working. Clicking or tapping in the wrong place would have been a disaster. Still, it was a smooth demo. Walt and Kara were constantly reaching over Julie's shoulders and touching the screen to see what would happen. We had agreed to the scope of the demo and that we would not venture off and show or talk about other features. Julie drew using a touch version of the venerable MS Paint and whisked through photo management, including features anyone with an iPhone would be familiar with, such as two-finger zoom and slideshows. At one point, Walt noticed the taskbar, the superbar we had showed them at the headquarters meeting previously, and said it looked a bit different and asked about it. Julie replied, you know we're not supposed to talk about that today. The mapping application from Surface Table was also shown, but on Windows 7, including the live data for Carlsbad, California, where the hotel was. The demo wrapped up with playing of a multi-touch piano application, which by coincidence was like one making the rounds on jailbroken iPhones. There was still no App Store yet, but the technically savvy crowd figured out how to use the release developer tools to build apps and sneak them onto a phone. Our demo was a success. Phew. Phew. Windows 7 was out there, at least in words, pictures, and videos. The next step was getting pre-release code into the hands of developers.